Hello, I'm Sarah Archer and you're listening to episode 43 of the Speaking Club podcast. I'm an avid reader of non-fiction. It was a difficult habit to get into, was the first book I read, followed by something a little easier for the novice, and more recently, Woman on a Mission. I'm determined to be a role model for my daughter, a mother superior if you like. (laughs) Canned laughter? Really? Yes, really. Welcome to the Speaking Club Podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Hey, welcome to the show. This month, as you know, has a productivity theme. And in this episode, I wanted to share with you some of the books I've discovered over the years that have helped me grow as a person, improve my craft, and achieve more, in the hope that you might find some of them useful too. Okay, let's go. Now, some of you might know that I started out on my speaking journey at 22. I was working abroad for a tech company in Germany and somehow I managed to get myself elected to be chair of the company Works Council, which is kind of like a union, but with less power. Now, lots of people were skeptical about whether I could do the job. And I I had a big test coming up in the form of a speech that I had to give to the whole company at an annual meeting where I had to respond to the leadership team. Now, I really wanted to do a good job to engage the audience and make an impact. But the thing was, at that time, at 22, I'd never done any public speaking or presentations before. And secretly, I was quite worried that actually the skeptics might be right. Now, at this time... Uh, quite a while ago, uh, the internet had only recently been born and TED Talks were years away. So I had very few points of reference. What I did was get myself some books and I thought they would help me put the speech together. And amongst them were two books that I still have and refer to today. The first one is You Are the Message by a chap called Roger Isles. And the second one is My Lords, Ladies and Gentlemen, compiled by Phyllis Schindler. Now, the first book, You Are the Message, by Mr. Roger Isles, who was himself a bit of a controversial figure. He was known for building Fox News into the media giant it is today, and then leaving in disgrace over sexual harassment allegations in 2016. Now, it's very, very likely that he and I would not have seen eye to eye on many, many many things but you are the message is a gem of a book it's got fantastic stories anecdotes and great teaching points from his time as a broadcaster and media coach to presidents and celebrities and and he he the purpose of the book is that he wants to show you why you need to drop the mask and take into account your whole being to communicate fully here's a quote from the book to illustrate The words themselves are meaningless, unless the rest of you is in synchronisation. The total you affects how others feel about you and respond to you. If you are uncomfortable with who you are, it will make others uncomfortable too. But if you can identify and use your good qualities as a person, others will want to be with you and cooperate with you. And one of the stories that's in the book that sticks out for me um, is when the legendary Bob Hope taught uh, Roger Isles a lesson about speaking up 
and asking for what you want. I really love this book and I still pick up great things from it today to help me with my speaking and communications. And I think it was ahead of its time. It was written in 1988, but it was all the way back then was talking about the theme of authenticity in your communication, which is incredibly popular today. And it forms the heart of the message of the book, which is summed up in the epilogue. Remember, we're all human and vulnerable. Show that side of yourself to others and they'll be more sympathetic to you. Now, the other of those two books that I discovered when I was putting that speech together was a compilation of the best and funniest after-dinner stories from the famous. And it was discovering this book at age 22 that started me on the journey to what I do today. As I read through the funny stories in that book, I realised that many of them had an underlying message or moral. And because they were presented as a funny story, it resonated with me. And I really, I found I could remember it really easily. So aside from being a great read, this book shows you how you can pack a lot into a few words. And although today I teach people to find their own stories where possible, it's fab for studying the structure of a funny story and for getting a bit more insight into the celebrities and politicians who told them. Because at the time I thought, well, if these funny stories work for those accomplished people, then why wouldn't they work for me? And I decided to pick a couple of those stories from that book uh, that I could link to my key points for this big company speech. And, and I also thought that, you know, where they were confrontational, because they were funny stories, it might make those bits easier to swallow. So the day of the speech came and I was so nervous. I'd spent most of the morning in the toilet, but I knew I'd prepared and I was curious to see how people would react to the funny stories. I was excited to tell them. And here's one of the stories I told that day from this book, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, and this one was from W.B. Fraser. The very wealthy chairman of a large company visited his men on site as whilst they were constructing a bridge. One well-known worker passed the chairman on the half-built structure and the chairman noticed the sole of his shoe was loose to the extent that it had become unstuck and was flapping as the man walked. The chairman called over, Angus, have you not got any decent walking shoes? You'll be having a serious accident with those. Well, sir, came the reply, I have no money until payday at the end of the month. The chairman took a big wad of five pound notes out of his pocket, took off the elastic band and handed it to Angus saying, put this around your shoe, it should make it safer. Now I'm chuffed to say that although my speech that day was far, far from perfect, the funny stories I used all landed and they did enough to convince my colleagues that maybe I could do the job and and I would definitely try and get the management to give us more than elastic bands. Now the next book I wanted to share with you is called Comedy Writing Secrets and it's from a chap called Melvin Hellitzer. Now as you'd expect, me being a stand-up comedian, speaker and writer, I have a ton of comedy books and this is one of my oldest. It again has got some engaging anecdotes but it also has loads of comedy techniques and examples from a range of comedians and then shows them how they're applied across different comedy writing disciplines. 
And this was really the first comedy book I'd read that explicitly talked about how you could use humour in business. And here's what Mr. Hellitzer had to say on that topic. Humour can be effectively used in business in the following areas. Interviews, where it encourages both parties to relax. Training sessions, which begin with humour references. Sales meetings, because attention starts to wane after five minutes. Bulletin board signs, which boost employee morale. Interdepartmental memos, where humour gets them read first. And compliment letters and sales letters. And in this section, he included an example of a humorous bulletin board sign. In order to continue to produce the highest quality work possible, all company executives will be trained in our new special high-intensity training, SHIT, programme. We will be giving our executives more SHIT than any other company in this area. If you feel as an employee that you would like to participate in this programme, please ask your supervisor to place you on his SHIT list. The management. From fortune cookies to humour in newspapers, this book has it all. And as well as making you laugh your head off, I'm sure like I did, you're definitely going to pick up some tips around adding humour to your content. Okay, my next book is called The Compound Effect by a chap called Darren Hardy. And it's one that gave me a big wake-up call. Some of the messages are scary and hard to swallow, especially if you don't find this book until later in your life. It's about recognising the power and impact of the small decisions we make every day that turn into the habits that shape our lives. And deep down, we instinctively know that the choices we make today affect our lives tomorrow. But this book is like being slapped around the face with a wet fish. It wakes you up with stories and facts to illustrate what happens based on the small, seemingly insignificant, unconscious often, decisions we make every day. And here's one of the examples from the book. Three buddies all grew up together. They lived in the same neighbourhood with very similar sensibilities. Each one made around $50,000 per year. They were all married and have average health and body weight, plus a little bit of that dreaded marriage flab. Friend number one, let's call him Larry, plods along doing as he's always done. He's happy, or so he thinks, but complains occasionally that nothing ever changes. Friend number two, Scott, starts making some small, seemingly inconsequential positive changes. He begins reading 10 pages of a good book a day and listening to 30 minutes of something instructional or inspirational on his commute to work. And Scott wants to see changes in his life, but he doesn't want to make a big fuss over it. He recently read an article and chose one idea from it to implement in his life. He decides to cut 125 calories from his diet every day. No big deal. Maybe a cup of cereal less or switching to a from a can of soda to water or from mayo to mustard on his sandwich. Doable. And he's also started walking a couple of thousand extra steps per day, which is kind of lesser than a mile. No grand acts of bravery or effort. Stuff anyone could do. But Scott is determined to stick with these choices 
knowing that although they're simple, he could also be easily tempted to abandon them. Friend number three, Brad, makes a few poor choices. He recently bought a big screen TV so he can watch more of his his favourite programmes. He's been trying out the recipes that he's seen on the Food Channel and the cheesy casserole and desserts of his favourites. Oh, and he installed a bar in his house and added one alcoholic drink per week to his diet. Nothing crazy. Brad just wants to have a bit more fun. At the end of five months, there's no perceivable differences that exist amongst Larry, Scott or Brad. Scott continues to read a bit every night, listen to audios during his commute, and Brad's enjoying life and doing less, while Larry, he keeps on doing what he always has. Even though each man has his own pattern of behaviour, five months isn't long enough to see any real decline or improvement in their situations. In fact, if you charted the three men's weights, you'd see a rounding error of zero. They look exactly equal. But at the end of the 10 months, we still can't see any noticeable changes in any of their lives. It's not until we get to the end of the 18th month that the slightest differences are measurable in these three friends' appearances. But at about month 25, we start seeing really measurable, visible differences. At month 27, we see an expansive difference. And by month 31, the change is startling. Brad is now fat while Scott is trim. And by simply cutting 125 calories a day in 31 months, Scott has lost 33 pounds. Brad only ate 125 more calories a day in the same time frame and he gained 33.5 pounds. But now he weighs 67 pounds more than Scott. But the differences don't end there. After investing 1,000 hours in reading books and listening to audios and putting the knowledge into practice, he's earned a promotion and a raise. And best of all, for Scott, his marriage is thriving. Brad, on the other hand, is unhappy at work and his marriage is on the rocks. And Larry? He's pretty much where he was two and a half years ago. He's just a little bit more bitter about it. The phenomenal power of the compound effect is that simple. The difference between people who employ the compound effect for their benefit compared to their peers who allow the same effect to work against them is almost inconceivable, yet it looks miraculous, like magic or quantum leaps. After 31 months, the person who uses the positive nature of the compound effect appears to be an overnight success. In reality, his or her profound success was the result of small, smart choices completed consistently over time. What Darren says makes absolute sense, but it's hard to hear. Because when we decide we want to change in our lives, we want it to happen tomorrow and with little pain or effort. But things don't work that way. It takes the right motivation to make the right decisions and repeat them over time to see the changes take effect. If you want more speaking gigs, make a commitment to making a call or new contact each day. If you want to become a better speaker, commit to working on it consistently. If you want to write better content, make a goal, create a plan of how you're going to get there and work the plan every day. I am going to revisit the book myself and I highly recommend it to you if you want to make a change in your life and are having trouble getting started. But don't wait. It's not too late, but do it today.
Right, well, the final book I want to talk to you about today is one called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Professor Cialdini is a psychologist who started this book because he wanted to give himself and others the tools to avoid being manipulated by salespeople who used what he calls the weapons of influence. But what he actually managed to do was show exactly the levers to pull if you wanted to influence people, whether you have good intentions or bad. Okay, so he identified a number of regular, blindly mechanical patterns of actions, which he called fixed action patterns, that we as human beings follow. And most of these pre-programmed tapes that we have sort of running in the background were created to protect us. But the triggers can be used to get us to play them at the wrong times. I absolutely love this book. Human beings are fascinating creatures. And it's amazing to see how easy it is to push our buttons. So many of the things that Professor Cialdini shares, you can see in action being used by public speakers, marketers and anyone that wants to influence someone else to reach a preferred outcome. Here's some of the ways that Cialdini suggests our behaviour can be influenced in his book. The first one is providing a reason. So this is, this is amazing. Just by providing a reason for asking for something can increase our chances of getting it. And I, I mean, I've seen this work in queues for theme parks and stuff. And in his example, Professor Cialdini talks about people being happy to let someone jump a long queue to get someone photocopied because they use the word because. The first time in this experiment, the person asked, they said it was because they were in a rush and this got a 94% success rate. And in the third test, they said it was because they wanted to make some copies, which was no different to anyone else in the queue. And even though that was the case, 93% of people were still happy for them to jump the queue. And and just to, to let you know, the second one, they just asked to, to move in front. They didn't use the word because. And this only had a 60% success rate. So the key is to use the word because, and it'll increase your chances of getting what you want. And the next one I'm going to talk about is social proof. Now, apparently one of the ways we use to determine what is correct is to find out what other people think is correct. And this principle applies especially to the way that we decide what constitutes correct behavior. So we view a behavior more correct in a given situation to the degree that we see others performing it. And whether the question's what to do with empty popcorn box in a movie theater, how fast to, to drive or, you know, on the road, or how to eat at a dinner party, whatever it is, the actions of those people around us will be important in helping us to pick the right answer. And in uh, the book, he uses in a few examples, but one um, which uh, might resonate given the start of the program was the use of canned laughter on TV programs. Now, it's a fact that if a TV program uses canned laughter, then we laugh longer and harder. Oh, I know, it's a big surprise because when asked, most of us say we hate it. And it, you know, it is false and fake and 
you know, it's just horrible. But the bottom line is that it plays to this social proof thing. Because if we see others doing something, we're more likely to do it. And that's that canned laughter has an influence on us. It's pushing that pre-programmed button and, and running that tape. That's why it's so important to use testimonials and case studies and, and because they're so powerful and persuasive in our talks and our marketing because of this social proof thing. Now, the last weapon of influence that I want to talk to you about is the power of commitment and consistency. And this is fascinating. It seems that we've got like this nearly obsessive desire to be and to appear consistent with what we've already done. Once we've made a choice or taken a stand, we will encounter personal and interpersonal pressures to behave consistently with that commitment. And those pressures will cause us to respond in ways that will justify our earlier decision, even if they don't make sense. And this almost always comes down to us not wanting to lose face because consistency is highly valued as a trait in our culture. We're the most disturbing example of how um, this is used against us in the book was an example that he gave of toy manufacturers who want to keep sales high over Christmas, uh, but also reduce the slump that they have in January. And so to do this, they exploit our desire to be consistent. Here's the excerpt from the book where Professor Cialdini himself gets caught out by this one. It was January and I was in the town's largest toy store. After purchasing all too many gifts there for my son a month before, I had sworn not to enter that place or anything like it for a long, long time. Yet there I was, not only in the diabolical place, but also in the process of buying my son another expensive toy, a big electric road race set. In front of the road race display, I happened to meet a former neighbour who was buying his son the same toy. The odd thing was that we almost never saw each other anymore. In fact, the last time was a year earlier in that same store where we were both buying our sons an expensive post-Christmas gift. That time, a robot that walked, talked and laid waste. And we laughed about our strange pattern of seeing each other only once a year at the same time, in the same place, while doing the same thing. Later that day, I mentioned the coincidence to a friend who it turned out had once worked in the toy business. No coincidence, he said knowingly. What do you mean, no coincidence? Look, he said, let me ask you a couple of questions about the road race set you bought this year. First, did you promise your son that he'd get one for Christmas? Well, yes, I did. Christopher had seen a bunch of ads for them on the Saturday morning cartoon shows and said that's what he wanted for Christmas. I saw a couple of the ads myself and it looked fun, so I said, OK. Strike one, he announced. Now for my second question. When you went to buy one, did you find all the stores sold out? That's right, I did. The stores said they'd ordered some, but didn't know when they'd get any more in. So I had to buy Christopher some other toys to make up for the road race set. But how did you know? Strike two, he said. Just let me ask one more question, he said. Didn't the same sort of thing happen the year before with the robot toy? Wait a minute, you're right. 
That's just what happened. This is incredible. How did you know? No psychic powers. I just happen to know how several of the big toy companies jack up their January and February sales. They start prior to Christmas with attractive TV ads for certain special toys. The kids naturally want what they see and extract Christmas promises for these items from their parents. Now, here's where the genius of the company's plan comes in. They undersupply the stores with the toys they've gotten the parents to promise. Most parents find those things sold out and are forced to substitute other toys of equal value. The toy manufacturers, of course, make a point of supplying the stores with plenty of these substitutes. Then, after Christmas, the companies start running the ads again for the other special toys. That juices up the kids to want the toys more than ever. They go running to their parents, whining, you promised, you promised. And the adults go trudging off to the store to live up dutifully to their words. Where, I said, beginning to seethe now, they meet other parents they haven't seen for a year falling for the same trick, right? Right. Uh, where are you going? I'm going to take that road race set right back to the store. I was so angry I nearly shouted. Wait, think for a minute first, he said. Why did you buy it this morning? Because I didn't want to let Christopher down and because I wanted to teach him that promises are to be lived up to. Well, has any of that changed? Look, if you take his toy away now, he won't understand why. He'll just know that his father broke a promise to him. Is that what you want? No, I said, sighing. I guess not. So you're telling me that they doubled their profit on me for the past two years, and I never even knew it. And now that I do, I'm still trapped by my own words. So what you're really telling me is... Strike three, he nodded, and you're out. I was shocked by that. That is a classic, and I'm pretty sure it's happened to me as a parent in the past too. Probably you as well. Now, there are loads more examples in Robert Cialdini's book of how our programs are triggered, and it's good to be aware of what's going on when these weapons are deployed. Okay, well, that's my five books. I hope, you know, maybe they've made you think or chuckle a bit. So there was uh, You Are the Message by Roger Isles. Then My Laws, Ladies and Gentlemen's by, Gentlemen by Phyllis Schindler. Then we had The uh, Comedy Writing Secrets by Melvin Hellitzer. The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And Influence by Robert Cialdini. So each of those books has had an impact on my life. And maybe you'll find them of benefit too. I know I'm always looking for a good book to read on holiday or while traveling. So I feel like I'm broadening my mind as well as broadening my horizons. I've put links in the show notes to each of those books. And, and these are affiliate links just to make you aware, which means that if you use them, I will get a tiny commission, but it won't affect your payment. Well, all that's left for me to say this week again is thank you so much for listening. It really makes me chuffed to be able to do this show and hopefully provide you with some value and every listener means the world to me. And if you are enjoying the show, please go ahead and subscribe. And if you could take a couple of moments to leave a review wherever you're listening, that would be brilliant. Well, that's it. Have a great week. Speak to you next time. 
And don't forget in the meantime to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.